0: My name is Mark Dering-Powell and you're listening to The Cinematography Podcast.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a programme about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod
2: Cameras in Hollywood, California are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how's it going? It's going awesome. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. Who's on the show today?
1: It is amazing DP Mark Doring Powell. He's somebody we've never really talked to anybody who works in the half hour comedy space. And he kind of is the half hour comedy space. He's done so much work in that world and also uh, was kind of an early innovator in uh, shooting features in HD. Really, really interesting talk.
2: Yeah, he and I have, I think we've never really maybe ever met in person or only maybe met very much in passing, but we've spoken a bunch of the years. But during his career, uh, you know, when I was working in rentals, I was aware of his shows that would be going out from the rental houses I would work in. And I've sold equipment to rental houses recently that I know where he was shooting and it was nice to to connect. It was nice to have a, a conversation.
1: Yeah, and actually, you you talk about that a little bit in the interview. It's very
2: interesting. Spoiler: Yes, that's yeah. We, we do some <laughs> of that. Yeah. Hey uh, Ben, it's been an interesting week, as you may be aware. The IATSE union negotiations are going on right now to renew the contract, and it is frightfully busy in town right now. There is a lot of stage stuff going on. There's a lot of productions and there's an open letter in Deadline as of last week in which top cinematographers call on producers to address the brutally long work days. And you know, this comes up, it seems like every time the IATSE contract gets renewed and nothing really ever gets done about it. What's your take on all this? Workdays in the film
1: industry are in fact brutally long, and I can attest to that. It's rare to work on a project where the hours for some poor schmo on, on the set or some giant group of poor schmoes doesn't sometimes exceed 14 hours. That's on a, on a normal day but I've had friends in various departments on huge stuff like Pirates of the Caribbean sized movies talk about just the insane hours where you're like working 72 hours straight. And I'm like, it's just inhuman. It doesn't matter that you're in triple golden time and you're saving for your retirement at that point. You can't stand up. It's bad for your health. It's bad for your health and uh, no one short of uh, Haskell Wexler, who should be uh, a demigod to anyone listening to this podcast, made a documentary a few years before he passed away called Who Needs Sleep? And it was about the brutal hours and short turnaround times. That are expected of people and, and you know I think outside of the film industry I think that there's this belief that it's sort of a first world problem the, the working conditions on a movie set but I'm here to tell you the hours are long most people don't work more than an eight hour day 12 hour day is kind of where you start with a film shoot.
2: The injuries and death that occur on film sets absolutely should not occur. And uh, the ones that are attributed to fatigue really, really shouldn't occur. I mean, occur. accidents
1: are going to happen. I understand. We're human beings. In the course of being alive, we're going to have accidents. Some of those accidents are going to be serious. And, you, you know, you can't, you can't stop people from having accidents. But, but you
2: know what? You can also not set up, you know, a perfect storm for accidents in which you've kept someone, you know, you've deprived someone of sleep for days on end and then expect them to be able to just you know even get themselves home after working so many hours it's it's really look you know haskell wexler in his documentary uh you know who needs sleep was calling for just a 12-hour day so just 50 percent longer than the normal you know eight hour work day that in most people not everyone and this is by the way again for and i'm probably preaching to the
1: choir to anyone who listens to this podcast but it's physical work you're, you're carrying around heavy pieces of equipment. You're moving stuff into places that aren't meant to be moved into. As I complained about in my war story, you know, when I was in the art department, I had to empty a hayloft one day and then fill another hayloft with that hay. It was like me and one or two other guys. It's just grueling, grueling physical work. And I'm not complaining about it. We all got into this for, uh, you know, for, for the glamour. glamour, for the, <laughs> for the excitement. The <laughs> but. No, but I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with doing a lot of physical work, but I do think that asking someone to do extremely physical work for 16, 17 hours in a day, ooh, you know, I mean, I feel like. Uh, We've all been in a situation where you're working on a project, a film, or anything where you have to pull an all-nighter or you have to, once in a while, you have to do one of those things. But it becomes so de in the film world and the TV world. And it really, to me, does kind of boil down to, especially when you're working in a factory setting like a TV series where it's like, It's the same crew. It's the same AD. It's you know, it may not it may not be the same director, but it's the same staff making episode after episode. If you're realizing the only way to get it done is to is to pull a 19 hour day every episode or or every day, then somebody needs to to alert. uh, This is why unions exist to make sure that people aren't being exploited in that way.
2: And, and you know, and here the the solution in the past was like, oh well, we're just going to make this so expensive that the producers and the studios won't ever do it. Guess what? There is no amount of money that is a deterrent. It seems yeah, like yeah, You're not There's you're <laughs> not going to
1: make, and I don't mean this in in a specific way, but you're not going to make any studio, Universal, Disney, whatever. You're not going to hurt them by uh, you know a show going over budget. It's really like there are days. And we've talked about it repeatedly where like everything goes off the rails and stuff doesn't go right. And you have to stay there a little late to get this to get the job done. And I think that literally everybody in this business understands that once in a while you might have to do that. But when it's when it's an everyday thing, these people can't have lives. They can't go to the dentist. You know, they can't they can't do anything but just keep working. And the money is good. So you're just going to keep working to fill that bank account. But
2: man, oh, man, the cost. Yeah, uh, th- th- So Deadline did this article Basically that yeah. once again There's this call on uh, the producers To fix this broken Aspect of the industry And it got signed on to buy a bunch of Great cinematographers, including many that have been on the show, uh, friends of the show, people who are going to be on the show soon. We've already recorded episodes that may not have aired yet, but people like you know Eric Messerschmidt and Paul mm. Cameron and Ellen Curris and Donald A. Morgan and uh, Mandy Walker and uh, Robert Yeoman. So it's like there's a lot of like big names on that list there that of, of people who are saying like you know enough is enough. This really yeah, those are all people timed. who are
1: working at the top of the game. And you know something that that I learned from our mutual friend, the late great neil fredericks neil would work on these indie films where they would exploit the shit out of the crew all the time and neil as the dp was the one who would stop them neil would say you can't treat my crew like that neil would say you can't push lunch we have to take a lunch you know like you've been working these guys all morning and honestly when i see that exploitation i do think of neil it is a brave move on his part because if you get a reputation as a dp that's super hostile to producers you might not work (laughs) or difficult yeah Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's like, who else is going to do that? If, if you're the second AC, and I distinctly remember, and actually, this was my alternate war story that we didn't include, but it was a, a film that I worked on early, early, early in my career when I was a makeup artist. And one day, the first AD came in, the first AD and, and the producer were best pals. And the first AD came in, and she was laughing her face off. What was she laughing her face off about? Second AC, who was working for free, he was a university student who was working for free on this relatively low-budget movie, asked had had the audacity, in her mind, to ask for a second meal after he'd worked 14 hours and he, he had like he was living in Miami he had driven himself at his own expense up to DeLand, Florida which is a perfectly nice community but you know it's a hike from, uh, from Miami he wasn't sleeping in his own bed he was sleeping in this weird house that the production had rented and he was sleeping like in a sleeping bag on the floor had the audacity to ask for a second meal and, and she was like when I was just starting out it wouldn't occur to me ha 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 and I have carried the disgust that I felt towards that AD with me all these years it pisses me off when people exploit people it's like our business it tends towards exploitation it tends towards asking people to work extra hard but for god's sakes like people got to sleep people got to eat and everyone's got a a different metabolism and needs more sleep or less sleep and you kind of have to act like hey everyone needs you know a good a good eight hours and it needs to have a a fucking life it's really uh i support these dps and what they're doing
2: In France, they all think we're crazy. They have uh, much more sane hours that are much more like a a traditional standard banker's hours. And it'll take more days, which means more money for the cost of of filmmaking. But Lord knows, um, there used to be all kinds of blames like, oh, talent, talent needs to have this. Or, you know, oh, that, you know, we need to be able to fit these certain number of jobs into a a certain number of schedules or or there's no other way to do it clearly that's not true and clearly now in this realm of peak tv where there's never been more stuff to watch absolutely. It's going to cost more, but people need to work. Eight, people need eight hours on eight hours off and eight hours for whatever the hell they want. And the idea of having zero hours for whatever the hell you mm. want is not acceptable. So, you know, people who work in this industry actually need to have some semblance of life. And I'm, I'm really glad that a bunch of DPs uh, stood up and, and said something about it. And I think that there might be a strike. I mean, I think if producers aren't willing to bend on this and it would be a really bad time for a strike in the industry because uh, it's so busy. But I mean, uh, I think it's time if they're not going to do it now then when the video there's a video in the deadline article from several years ago that you can watch it's 10 minutes long but if you really want to explore get deep down into this we'll find a link in the show notes to the documentary who needs sleep it's totally worth watching it's a it's it's a a great great documentary do you know if iansy's ever gone on strike i actually don't know if they actually have yes there's there's been a couple of different strikes i know like uh, the
1: wga's gone on strike sag's gone on strike dga never never gone on strike
2: well i do know that certain guilds have struck certain productions and companies and things like that because i know i i picket lined uh once or twice when i was in the guild so Mm. but you know what i don't remember i don't remember if there was a nationwide strike that's a good question i actually have to research that i wasn't in the guild all that many uh years so there wasn't a a full strike when i was there so
1: anyway well let's let's go on with the interview
2: yeah let's get to the interview with mark during powell
1: the Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I am here today with Mark During Powell, DP of currently of Grownish, but like tons of single camera comedy projects and just an enormous resume. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Uh, great. Thank, thanks for having me. So
1: we're kind of here first to talk about Gronish, which you've shot, according to IMDb, you've shot 43 episodes of Grownish. And it just seems, I mean, that, that it, it, it's just such a prolific amount. But can you talk a little bit about like how you came to work on Grownish and how you went about kind of building the look for Grownish?
0: Yeah, I was, um, I'd worked with Michael Petock, the producer, on a Hulu project in 2014. And then we were on different gigs. I was in Atlanta on a show and came back here. And this opportunity came up after season one, which um, Paola Hudobro shot uh, season one, the first 13 episodes. Oh, yeah. And this series was, you know, Kenny spin spinoff from from Blackish, And they had sort of, I guess, based a look on, not, or just were inspired by Submarine. I don't know if you've seen that. Sort of a coming-of-age story. And, uh, of course, the show doesn't look like that one, but that was sort of the jumping-off point. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came on, I watched the first season, and I also saw the scripts that were coming up in season two, and I knew that the show would have to grow, right? And you just see that, that there were there were more storylines and very you know relatable characters and so on that uh, and sort of you could maybe even take an anthology approach to some of the episodes you know there were just some very serious topic matters that they were subject matters topics that they were tackling and so it required more than just going in with with sort of one look and it depended on mm-hmm. and I decided to sort of base it on characters and on the spaces that they inhabit.
1: Now, I've never worked on or near any show like that, which and correct me if I'm getting any of the nomenclature wrong, but it's, you know, they're they're 30 minute comedies, but they're single camera. And like, how is that different from other TV? I always wonder if your schedules are tighter or like how how, do you have the same amount of time that a sitcom that that was shot, you know, in in one location in front of a live audience would have to prepare and shoot or how does it work? What are the mechanics of it?
0: Yeah. So, um, a single camera, half hour comedy, it's, it has more time technically than a multi-camera sitcom that has, you know, a bunch of pet cameras that are maybe they're rehearsing Hmm. one day and shooting one day. roughly. That's usually the arrangement, broadly speaking. There's different ways that those are approached too. So normally, this type of show would have about five days. You know, one week, five days of work would deliver about a half hour of television, which is actually about twenty two mm-hmm. minutes of television of story. And we have four days, pretty much four to four and a half. So we have a little less, um, which makes it challenging. So in that regard, it is it is a little tricky. You're you're definitely always in prep shoot mode. Like you have a moment between takes and invariably half of those are filled with turning to your key grip and gaffer and you're working something out for the next week or two that's coming up
1: so you shoot an episode in four days and then the next week you shoot another episode in four days you don't have like a week down to prep and then and then another four days
0: yeah there's no there's no break now normally what we do is you do a block of two episodes so one director will do a block of two which makes it a little more efficient so Mm -hmm. you can let's say you have a half a day on one episode that could be on this location, you try to build another half day in at that location, try to avoid your company moves. So there is that efficiency that's built in a little bit. But for example, the episode that I was nominated for um, was one uh, four-day episode by itself that that Jenny Vice Kensick Henry um, directed. And those are hard because you get into that four-day block of, of just shooting that, and you're already prepping the next block. And you've been prepping the next block even before that. So oh, wow. it is. It, it's a little odd. You have to just sort of be at peace with the fact that it's it's a little chaotic, and you just gotta kind of like just keeping it together and, and just uh, and just chiseling away at the task that you have to be prepared for the next one.
1: Are there any, uh, I hate to say tricks or tips, but like any ways that you kind of keep that stuff organized and keep the communication flowing that smooth that? Because it just it just sounds like just such an amazing workload. And also, you know, like if you're in the middle of shooting an episode and you make a choice that the next episode hinges on or something and you get there and it wasn't it wasn't a good idea, you're screwed. So, like, how do you uh, database everything, I guess, is my real question.
0: Yeah. Most of it is in person. There, I'll start with the stuff that's not. Like I used to use, or well, it used to be voicemail, but then I used, moved on to WhatsApp and eventually I used, moved on to Slack in mm-hmm. with being able to to communicate with post. So being able to leave a message for the dailies colorist, for example, because they're on different schedules than we are. You know, like your dailies mm-hmm. colorist, you're, they're transferring stuff at night, but I may want to leave them a quick message. So I have some way to actually do that while I'm driving home <laughs> or driving mm-hmm. to work. <laughs> So I try to do certain things like that, like be able to use my certain things during the time that I can normally not do anything else, like I'm driving. Um, And that's been very useful. I I try to stay in touch with posts. I'm really good about that. Uh, And Slack, I think is pretty useful if it's used right. I think Slack is more about like not abusing people's weekend time, like people can turn that off and not have a ding. That's how it should be Mm -hmm. used. You shouldn't use it to, to commandeer people's time more. Um, Email can do that. I've been using
1: it wrong. I've been using it wrong all (laughs) these years, seriously. Yeah, I would find myself in like four different slack teams and like it was just dinging constantly and I eventually just turned off all of the (laughs) alerts.
0: Right, right. And that's, I mean, that's the beauty of it. Like you should turn off and that's why I did kind of like that. So those things do help a little bit with the departments that you're not around being remotely. um, And this is before COVID too, right? Like that's a really useful thing to have. I'm always amazed when I hear, when people are not in touch with post or their dailies. And I think that's a mistake. I think I might not talk to my dailies colors for two months, but something might come up. I might just want to let them know that we shot a lot of 48 frames, but most of it's going to play at 24. But we just want to shoot 48 uh. to have. And then if there's a lot, if I know it's going to be, I've talked to the director and I know it's going to be mostly 24, I can save them the work of doing it twice. They might just go ahead and do all their 24 frame sync work and just save the 48. If I know that there's gonna be a lot of back and forth between slow-mo and sync sound, I won't say anything and they'll transfer both. But if I can save them the work, I will. Other than that, it is really just, you know, face-to-face communication on set with your best boys, your key grip, Paul Schmidt is our key grip, Jay Yowler has been my gaffer since 2014, he's amazing. So it's just constantly just being in touch with people. That's, uh, there's just no avoiding that.
1: Um, something that caught my eye. I mean, it's it's been a while since kind of single camera thirty minute series has uh, become, More commonplace. They've they've been around forever, but I would say it was the early aughts when you had shows like My Name is Earl or Malcolm in the Middle kind of started the trend of doing uh, these kinds of shows. And one of the things that impresses me about them and impresses me about your work is as opposed to a sitcom, a three camera, four camera sitcom, which is its own entire challenge, but it's the need to make these shows kind of uh, cinematic. And, you know, when you're describing, you're saying you're doing, you know, probably, what, about five pages a day, which is, you know, not insane, but a lot, especially when you, can, when you watch any of the shows that you work on and you see, like, the amount of precision camera work or, you know, like, using the camera as a character. I guess that's sort of the question I'm, I'm kind of orbiting around here is, like, how do you find in a tight schedule like that, how do you make the play to make the camera kind of a character in the show itself?
0: That's really challenging. How do you, how do you make these these fast schedules, these really short schedules sing? And I think I, I think the way to approach it is just try to be a filmmaker. you know try to tell the story with the filmmaking. Sometimes that means just staying out of the way a little bit and hanging back and picking the right lenses and picking the right viewpoint. But if you can go in with some really strong basic ideas like who is this scene being told from? what point of view? go in with a point of view that helps and, and this helps. I find it helps directors, too, because I just ask them, like, well, who's this? Are we telling this from, you know, is this Zoe's POV? Because she's not really in this. She's going to narrate on this later. She's going to have a voiceover on this. But Mm. it's really from, this is really from Aaron's point of view. You know, and then we can approach, find an approach that works a little better. It's very simple things like that, that that just help you find a way, and they'll save you work because you're not covering every doorknob and everything in the room. You can really consolidate a little bit on what you're going to do and tell the story better. Don't get me wrong, there's plenty of scenes when there's, you know, you're doing four or five pages with six or seven cast members, and you're going to have to do close-ups on most of them, and those are really hard, and we might even bring in three cameras for that and cross-shoot a little bit. But for the most part, I think being allowed to be a filmmaker helps, because i I give you an example, like sometimes we do swingles, right? We want to swing back and forth between some lines. And there's a very like quick I've never way you can heard that, that term
1: before. I'm totally gonna use that. That's yeah. a great. That's a great term. <laughs>
0: yeah, we do. It's sort of a little signature that we do now and then. Like every now and then we have a scene where we swing back and forth. And there's a like down and dirty way you can do. We just sort of zoom in and, and do some of those, but they're just not good. And and early on I knew I'd have to just move the camera in tighter, like just like two three feet away and swing back and forth. And I did one of those in Luca's first dorm room. And they loved it. And I, I, was, it, I remember that was the first time when I knew I was, th- I, I knew which direction to take because I was like, oh, they like that? Good. There's a couple other things we might be able to do that they might like, you know? So, but you have to see what, what they have an appetite for because you have to say like, hey, I'm not just going to zoom in. Just give me like, literally give me two minutes to move the camera in and then we'll be ready. And it's literally that. And you have to fight for those two minutes sometimes, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, well
1: let's talk about like how you got your start. Like what was the moment that made you decide to pursue cinematography as a career?
0: Well, I went to art school in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I was in for painting and graphic design my first year. And I discovered a film department in the basement of the gym. And there was also a computer, computer graphics department. That was just at the time phenomenal and way ahead of its time, tiny little department that was down there with the film department. And I just, I, I found this, just people were working on all this cool stuff down there, and I just immediately changed my major. <laughs> um, oh wow! Yeah, and so sophomore year on, I just uh, I majored in film, and that's kind of where I knew that that would be just a you know that would be my my future. That's that's just much more of what I wanted to do. I graduated school and I worked as a Photosonics tech in New York uh, on commercials.
1: What what is Photosonics? I'm unfamiliar with. Oh, I'm photosonics. sorry. So
0: photosonic's it's a slow motion camera. So at the time. You had two cameras, basically you had a thir- you know two thirty five millimeter cameras. one could shoot three hundred and sixty frames a second pin registered rock steady, and the other one could go up to two thousand five hundred frames a second on a, on a drum. The film would never stop it had like a rotating prism that would paint the image as it moved uh, past oh, the wow. gate. yeah, it was really cool so that was really fun. I mean I worked on like huge release Scott commercials that were at jFk airport and um, just ton, just like all the big commercials Everybody was shooting some slow motion somewhere it was, just, it was like a thing back in the late 80s and early 90s
1: I've heard stories about those cameras Like if they had the slightest jam Or if the sprocket didn't catch properly That they would immediately have to stop everything And the, the camera itself like, that would just be jammed Full of 35 millimeter film
0: That's exactly right You, I had um, surgeons forceps that clamped on really tight And uh, you just opened the door And just like literally pull And you just had like film chips flying over your shoulder Like it looked insane and yeah. there was oil. You, you had to lubricate the movement a lot. There's a lot of oil in there. It's literally the bottom of the camera would fill up with like a quarter of an inch of oil, as you as you rolled for like maybe wow. half an hour. And you would think this is like crazy. Like you, you're squirting oil all over the film and everything, but it all comes off in the in the, in the watch. Um, It's never an issue. But when people see that, especially camera systems who do it for the first time. They're just like, you're insane. What do you mean? Are you this is not gonna work? (laughs) You know? The ones that have done photosonics are of course like, yeah, it's awesome. You know, let's get the shot. So that's kind of how I started. It was a lot of fun. I mean, it's like it's like being on a pit crew for a Formula One race car. Like it's just an awesome piece of machinery, you know. But when I moved out here, I had to find work as a camera assistant. So I went down to Corman's. What a what a weird and wonderful place. What a What a weird lumberyard stage! I've heard so
1: much about the lumberyard. Yeah,
0: you can. Yeah, that's what it was. There was a lumberyard on Main Street, not that big. Gold's Gym was next door. You had these little tiny stages that could barely do a couple of bedroom sets, maybe. Editing was there. You had the the flatbeds were across the way, over where the construction was, and they were shooting a film a month. So um, I remember when I was a camera assistant, I remember going from one film to another. And you had maybe just a couple of days before you start shooting the next one.
1: Wow. And who were some of the DPs that you were working with back then? I mean, like, that's when some humongous, legendary, Oscar winning DPs were going through there.
0: Mark Perry. Mark Perry was the one who shot Fantastic Four. So, Mark oh, yeah. Mark Perry was, uh, now he, I believe, ended up teaching film in Florida. Um, but he didn't, he, his stuff was amazing, I gotta say. And he ended up shooting Fantastic Four. I only worked on it for a couple of days. I day played on it when they were shooting up in the Santa Susana Mountains. But
1: that that is such a legendarily weird project to have have worked on at all. I mean, uh, you know, for for our listeners who haven't heard of it, there's actually a documentary I want to say on Amazon Prime about the making of it. But it was like somebody was trying to keep the rights to the Fantastic Four, but a movie had to be made in a certain period of time so they got – corman to make one so there's a full feature that has never been released although i think there are bootlegs that you can find out there of the fantastic four made in the mid 90s and everyone working on it thought they were and this is before making a big marvel movie was a big deal uh but it's just you can find pictures of it and it's like such an ambitious it's possibly the most ambitious crazy low budget movie ever made
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if any of us thought that it was going to be the next best thing coming out, but we certainly tried. I (laughs) I do. I do remember stretch being a two by four, you know, with an arm going long with a two by four stretched out, you know, through a long (laughs) sleeve. And this just just so horrible. Um, Like, what else did you have? Right. You didn't have any money, you know? It's pretty bizarre that we were shooting basically a fake movie, right? Like, we were just doing yeah. it. And you made a whole
1: movie. I mean, that's the thing. Like, a whole movie cast, shot, edited, put together. They had a they had a premiere screening of it. And, like, everyone was like, hey, look at us. We're the Fantastic Four. And then the movie was intentionally shelved because it only ever existed to, like, hold on to the rights. To, that's, that's they had right. to make a movie, not release a movie within a certain period of time.
0: And you had to be... You know, the the bond company or whatever, whoever, the financiers, you had to be convincing. You couldn't just, you know, oh, yeah, we're making a movie and we got a home. Like, no, you had to really be convincing, I guess, to do this, I I suppose, Mm -hmm. because why else would they spend even any money to do it? So it is it's funny. I've had there are some people who are trying to dig up more information on that and, and, you know, write a book or whatever, because it is such a bizarre story. But it was pretty much um, buried rather successfully. (laughs) <laughs> and you know, all you have is a couple of people talking about it. You know, um, yeah, it's pretty bizarre.
1: I even remember in the mid '90s, there was a magazine. I mean, the, the organization still exists. There was a magazine called Film Threat, and the Fantastic Four was on the cover. Like they were expecting the movie to come out. So I'm curious, why did you pursue being a cinematographer as opposed to staying in the camera department where you can have a, you know, a, a pretty fine career moving up up the ranks you know, from AC to operator and lots of people do? When did the bug bite you that you wanted specifically to be a cinematographer?
0: Well, I think the issue with me is that I was always shooting while I was an assistant and, and while I was operating because I just wanted to hone my skills and build a reel. And, and I had some contacts from film school like when I the, when I first moved out here in the first year I was already flying back and I did a PSA with a friend of mine in Brooklyn and we did a, it actually won a Silver Clio Award. Oh wow yeah, it was really cool and so I was always just trying to just get better at shooting because eventually either somebody sends you off to shoot some second unit or some inserts or you have to just shoot. you have to mm. eventually get a camera in your hand, start lighting, going to dailies seeing what works, what doesn't work did you overlight it? How dark can you go? How, you know, remember we're shooting film back then, so everything was really getting a feel for the lab and the film stock, and you're shooting dark scenes sometimes. Like, how do you get that spot meter out? Like, how dark can you go? And you know, when is it too far? You know, so that's kind of the thing you have to practice. And I think for me, I was actually operating and assisting. I I like I worked on NYPD Blue, had a great time on that. I did operate on a, on a couple of TV shows where I got brought in as a as like an additional operator, and they kept calling me. But then I was called by the director then to shoot some 18, 20-day wonder, and then I would do that. Because back in that time, you were DP operating.
1: Yeah. And primarily, it seems like what you're doing now is television. Uh, You did do one feature that I want to say was one of the early HD features uh, called seeing other people that you shot. I want to say that was one of the first, like, non-Star Wars, theatrically released HD features. Can you talk a little bit about kind of embracing HD at at an earlier time, or shooting digitally, as I guess we would say today, as opposed to shooting film?
0: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right about seeing other people. It was a labor of love for Gavin Pallone and and Wally Willodorski, who directed that. They put their own money into it. And originally, they wanted to shoot it. Dan Kaplan was a producer I worked with a couple of times before and after that and you know originally they're like oh let's just shoot on a vx 1000 you know which is like this oh, horrible wow. little prosumer camera and yeah, right yeah, away well. yeah right and right away i'm doing the i'm doing the math on like oh my i gotta convince them to not do that right so i got i went to panavision good, and good they job had... good job that would have been a totally <laughs> different movie <laughs> yeah 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 so so it's funny it's such a you know that is actually a good example again of you know, try to be a filmmaker. Meaning, when do you do a comedy that's done uh, 235, you know, widescreen? At the time, mm-hmm. you know, that was not something that you saw very often. And, and we're mostly in these tiny little interiors. But I, I did have scenes with more people in them. And I really thought I could make use of the wider frame. So that was awesome. That was one way I actually sold it, too. Like I said, look, if you do it with the F900, we have enough resolution that we can actually afford to crop away a little bit and, and deliver this cool widescreen thing. And they were totally on board with it, so great. And the other thing that happened when you did that is, the, the first day we're shooting in an interior, and we do a nice little wide shot of just them sitting there talking, and the set decorators coming by and they're looking at the monitor and they start dressing the frame. They're putting some mail, some envelopes over here and some keys, and and you're dressing the frame, and because it's just an interesting frame, and so automatically it elevated the work. Like everybody just started making this frame better. And, and I, and that was the first time I realized that, um, it was, it was really kind of a a pleasant surprise. So we're in a much better place now, right? Like any, you know, you can get an Alexa mini and some Leicas and you can just do marvelous work. Like now we just have so many options and it was hard back then. You had to do a lot of tests. You had to do your homework. You had to go all the way through post. It was the unknown. It was especially going to theatrical There there was, you know, do you shoot rec 709? Do you do this 7240 thing that nobody knew about? What is that? You know, what's the color space? Yeah. Nobody knew what they were doing, really. Um, yeah, there
1: wasn't there wasn't a proven workflow. And actually I never really thought about it till you just brought it up, but like pre that every you'd have like one video assist or whatever, you'd have one video tap monitor and you couldn't, people couldn't really see, it wasn't what you see is what you get. You'd still have to use your imagination a little bit, uh, no matter how, you know, some of them were very good, but you're still kind of looking on a, at a ground glass with a, basically a lipstick camera that's kind of going in there. So like, it must've been, it it was interesting to hear you talk about how like suddenly people are seeing the the frame, like this is the shot. And these days that's all anyone gets and you can have any number of monitors. So it's, it's not, it's not special but uh was that an adjustment for you did you have to you know like now everyone can sort of see your work in progress at every stage exactly what it's going to look like did that change how you worked
0: yeah it is the definite reality you know like the 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 monitors are sort of the opiate of hd right like everybody loves that monitor and now we have such you know great it's so much easier now you don't have a big heavy crt monitor you're dragging around the oleds are so fantastic and you're right. Like I look, I would love to have a DIT on every job that I do. Like for example, on Gronish, I don't, I don't have a DIT. I have my own pre-made luts that I've made that I have in lut boxes that I can toggle through that I might apply. And I'm kind of th- like I'm thankful on on Gronish, for example, where they trust me and I don't have I don't have the exact look necessarily to every every scene that we might do, but I'll put the closest lut on there that might get us there. And and I just and i and, and they trust me. I can say to them, Oh, on this one I'm I'm just gonna de sap this even more, you know? But mm-hmm. this will take us halfway there. And I just love having that trust. And then when it comes back in the final color, now they know not to get used to the dailies version. The dailies version is often very close because they're using our LUT that we have to apply to dailies. Mm-hmm. And so the version that you see on the average and so on is is often very, very close to what we deliver. But every now and then m- the colorist um, Gareth Cook over at the foundation, we work very closely together, and we will throw some color frames back and forth. That we'll experiment with just some still frames that we might might have beforehand, and we we just we work very hard on the color.
2: Let, let me uh, just jump in here real quick because uh, you're kind of treading into some some fertile territory that. Uh, you know, we try not to get too technical in the show, but, but of course, uh, Technic is very much part of uh, this business and this industry, and you can't uh, separate it. I was working at uh, Wexler when uh, Everybody Hates Chris was just going into production in the, in the early days. I know that the, the camera package came from there, and there was sort of a ridiculous tower of GAC that came along with it. There was all of the early sorts of, I want to say, headaches that went along with HD production, including like audio delay and there was Evert's boxes and a a ton of equipment that went out on your show. Can you compare a little bit just in, I would say, maybe between Everybody Hates Chris, uh, which would be probably the, the very sort of like early day of uh, early days of HD production for television in sort of a uh, non-live you know uh, you know two-tape edited show, and then like just add magic, which I have to say is an incredible look, super super high-end, high production value look. Uh, uh, I mean, there's just really it looks uh, fantastic. And then a show like Gronish, where now uh, no DIT, and it sounds like you're you're very uh, very much more minimalistic compared to sort of this maybe the stuff that's come before can you talk about just sort of the progression of shooting television and and these formats and and how your work has changed over time
0: uh, that's a great question because that kind of defines <laughs> the re- the direction i've taken because i i do i've consciously taken the direction to simplify it, it it's crazy when you think back on it it really is let me give you an example of how messed up things were at that time just one challenge i'll give you a very critical challenge that hurt me twice on two HD shows. This the first one was on was on Family Fair. The DIT had only done multi camera. This was the um, the aptitude came from multi camera, right? So he came in and he's like, "Look, you gotta do everything try level sync. All the cameras have to be on a live switcher, and they have to be clocked exactly right." And I and and I was like, "All right, fine, I don't care." But then <laughs> when he started telling me what the ramifications of that were. I was like, wait, what? what are you saying here? And they were, they were like, well, when the editor starts cutting on the Avid, if they cut to a frame that's not in sync, it'll, it'll jump. I'm like, and I said, I said, hang on, hang on. Look, I, I get it. I think you're a little confused between a live switcher, in like in like in multi-camera, and an Avid when somebody's editing, because there is no jump. Because if I, if I had three film cameras here, they're not trial-level synced. We just start rolling. They're not frame-accurate to one another. When one shutter is open over here, this one's closed and nobody cares. And he, didn't, he couldn't wrap his head around that because all he knew was multi-camera. That was, those were the only DITs that were around in 2001.
1: Wow. So,
0: so what that meant though, because he had tri-level sync going, I didn't want to step on his toes. I let him do his thing. Well, what it meant though is you, if you had a loose cable, you could totally, you know, if you're doing a handheld shot and that cable lost sync for one frame, you would scramble your, your take. For two or three no! (laughs) And you wouldn't know it till the next day because you just do like a date check where you do a record review of your last five seconds. So, and then that indeed happened to us. And then I just came and I was like, all right, just unplug. We had a loom of cable. I was like, unplug all the tri-level sync. And he was still like, he went to the producers and he's telling him, you know, Mark's going to mess up the whole thing. You won't be able to edit it. And I just was like, no, no, I'm not going to mess anything up. Look, uh, look, let's just roll. You know, we did like a quick test, you know, look, go send this in, see if you can edit it. (laughs) Because nobody knew, it's not his fault either. Nobody really knew. And actually what informed me was my film experience, right? Because the Avid doesn't need to have every frame synchronized because, right. Um, So those were, that's just one of the many dark days of HD (laughs) that we dealt with uh, back then.
2: Workaholics has a very very particular look, and I, I know you're not credited as cinematographer, but I happened to be watching an episode and I saw your name on the slate right uh, right when Anders is doing a rap to camera, and so it made me suspect that maybe you shot you you you, you did some DP work uh, or some units or something something for that. Can you talk about the experience of of camera operating on a mostly handheld? Uh, and I'm guessing lower budget, Comedy Central sort of series. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and uh, and working in in what I'm assuming is a uh, also a, a really quick schedule? But um, and I could be wrong. It, maybe it's not a quick schedule, but it feels like it's kind of got that low budget indie vibe, and that's part of its charm. So uh, so I don't know. tell 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 us a little bit about
0: Workaholics. Work, you're you're absolutely right. Workaholics was so much fun. Um, I did the first season. So I DP'd the first season uh, It's two cameras. I shot that actually on the precursor of the VariCam, oh. on the ENG version, the 3700, which which nobody used. And uh, somehow I ended up picking that one. There was a couple of reasons. They actually went to a C300 in the second season. We wanted to go to the C300, but there were some things that weren't quite ready yet with the way that we were doing posts and our workflow. Yeah, and I, I operated... Most of the eight camera shots, it was a lot. Half of it was handheld. The story was that in the office, it was sort of like very, like, sort of boring, like, this place sucks. You know, everything's sort of locked off and very flat lighting, fluorescent lighting. And then everything else is sort of handheld and had energy to it. And I had so much fun on that. I mean, we would talk about how we had to control our breathing because it's, it just, those guys would ad lib and you really, it was hard not to laugh because you're, you're kind of close to them and you want to ruin the soundtrack. And I had a hard time with that. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I had to, it, was, it was hard, it was a lot of fun. And that was another four day episode. We, we would prep on Mondays. Mondays was spent prepping that week again, making sure that everything was, all your ducks were in a row for that week. And you would also look ahead to the next episode. You might scout some locations and so on. So we would prep Monday and shoot Tuesday through Friday. And that worked really, really well.
2: I know you, you say that your shows look different, and they do, but I'll tell you that you make people look really good. You, you I mean, I think you really mm-hmm. achieve the goal. Like, your leading cast all look gorgeous, and I, I know that has, a, you know, it's it helps that they're already attractive to start with, but when you add really incredible lighting with that, then it just takes it to the next level. And I'm not going to ask you to reveal your, your secret sauce of, of filters or lighting or anything like that here, but it, do you have some sort of a playbook? Okay, fine. Ben, ben Alaska, do you have some sort of playbook that you like to do when you, you want to make people look their best and in the style of shooting and you get to work in some, some hard light too for fun or what's, what's your approach to to the hard light?
0: Good question. Um, There's not one formula to that. I do like splashing hard light into a set and having it react with the set or even off the wardrobe when it, when it works, you know, you can get in trouble with that too. If you have it bounced too low off somebody in front of them and you get too much of an underlight on somebody, it can not look great, but just right. It can look really nice and rappy, right? Like you're actually using the, the, the desk that they're sitting at, or the person next to them to sort of bounce some light off of them. That's one thing that we do sometimes, which is just more interesting and actually can be more flattering. This is really close to them and wrappy to create a pleasing light uh, rather mm. than putting, than putting a, a, a soft bank there, which can't be there because it's in the shop, right? So in some ways, I do light the space, but I learned early on, Lowell Peterson told me early on, light the people, you know you got to also light the people, which you sort of know, right? That's what DPs have been doing for decades, right? But you can light the space. A lot of times some projects let you do that, you know, where you can do a developing master. Somebody walks in and you're steady camming along with them and you do a couple of different sizes. Then you swing around, you shoot this way, and you can get done very quickly. But there are either tricks you have to use to make sure that they're standing where that will look good on them so that the sunlight that's hitting over here will, will create a nice key. Uh, where mm. they where they end up, and how to augment that from something that you have up higher, if you need to. Again, this is like the fun of it, right? Like, I just enjoy doing that. And I have a I have a great guy for Jay Yowler, who doesn't shy away from that. He's like just the best at that stuff. He is such a mad scientist when it comes to stuff like that. He's great at either putting little quasar tubes with pool noodles on them, hiding them somewhere to help augment that, or he's bouncing light off of something. We have a good shorthand where I'll say like, I know that desk is on fire, but I'm going to put a window there to get that, to get that clipping back. There's enough there in the log that I can, I can like massage that back because it won't look right while we're shooting it sometimes. But in the end, I know I can make that right. So that kind of like interactive lighting is really fun to do. But again, it's like where we're lighting the space meets lighting the people. and And that's a fun intersection to arrive at. Um, Because sometimes you can do both and and end up lighting the people very interestingly, very flattering light to be done that way. So, yeah, I'll use hard light when I can, but, you know, I've been just as guilty of of using soft smart side keys and because they work and it's like a really classic Hollywood style. And why not? It's really flattering. It's the best modeling. You know, it's uh, I draw upon a lot of that whenever it works for the scene.
1: Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, before we go, is there any place where people can see your work other than like all television that has been made in the you know, the last 10, 15 years?
0: Uh, you can go to my website, uh, markduringpowell.com. And uh, I've got a couple of clips on there. And uh, most recently, uh Grown-ish, mm-hmm. the fourth season is, uh, is still showing now. There new episodes that are dropping every week. And you can see that on uh, Freeform and Hulu the the following week.
2: And and let me just uh, uh, jump in real quick here and also say congratulations again on your third Emmy nomination for uh, oh yeah for for, for Grownish. And also it is the number one show on for the Freeform network. I think for you know a long time running now. So it's still it's very very successful. And I think it's. If I read correctly, it is the number one rated comedy program on cable for women eighteen to
0: forty-nine. So, boom. Whoa.
2: That's a yeah. That's a that's a, that's a huge demographic, and uh, that, those you. are great numbers. Congratulations.
0: Thank you, thank you. It's, it's a it's a great team there. It's a wonderful show. I'm lucky to be there. It's such a great show to work on, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful show. And they they take on some very tough, uncomfortable topics, which I, is why I think it resonates with its audience.
1: Congratulations again, and thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: All right, so that was Mark during Powell. Hey, uh, thanks so much for being on the show, mark. it was it was great to chat, and uh, we'll have to do it again.
1: I thought that was an unbelievably enlightening interview. It was it was so interesting to delve into how he does everything he does. And also just to hear I I know it's not actionable to someone who's like starting out and we try to stay away from uh, getting into too much tech. But I love hearing the history of how he moved from film to HD and how HD has simplified since then into into our current digital world that it is now.
2: Yeah, I agree. It was
1: fun. Hey, Ben, guess what time it is? Uh, It says it's 10.04 p.m. on my computer.
2: Uh, It is time to pay the bills. It is actually time for us to uh, do a shout out to a new sponsor of the show. What? Yep. New sponsor. New sponsor is a company called DZO Film. DZO film makes some really interesting lenses, and they make them in cinema style. So uh, they're available in PL mount and also the alternative mount out there that some people uh, like, which is EF mount. And I want to talk about very briefly here, the Vespid Primes, which is a brand new set of cinema prime lenses. And they're just sort of making their way out into the world right now but unlike a lot of other companies they have emerged from the womb fully formed with a seven lens set including a macro lens and you can also choose not to get the macro if you don't want to but uh it's a really great lens and i have to say that what makes these lenses uh, and the price is going up a little bit here but they're just over a thousand dollars per lens and for a cinema lens i know for a cinema lens that is extremely, uh, especially a PL mount cinema lens, really uh, unlikely because most consumer lenses are, are you know, the, of, of any quality are more expensive than, than that. And yeah, that's an amazing price. And they did a really good job at minimizing the things you don't want, like breathing. Like these lenses, when you focus, the image size doesn't change. They're really, really well controlled. They're controlled to the same level of lenses that cost way, way, way more than these. It's it's deeply impressive what they've been able to do, especially at such a low price. Uh, we stock them at Hot Rod Cameras. Uh, if you would like to check them out, we keep demo sets there so people can come play with it. We also have a really cool little video on our Hot Rod Cameras YouTube channel, which we do a comparison between all the sort of top entry level cinema lenses in the market, including these DZO Vespids, and you should totally check them out. If you were looking at small, inexpensive cinema lenses, of which these definitely are, they're they're smaller than a can of Coke. They have uh, 80 millimeter fronts and in PL mount in particular, they're an incredible value. And anyone who's looking in sort of like that uh, less expensive or converting sort of still lenses to use for cinema, they should absolutely give these a shot because they're amazing. They're really impressive. I'm excited to see that, and also you kind of dropped in there. But we're getting uh,
1: way more involved in our YouTube channel, so uh, there's there's all kinds of new stuff to see on our YouTube channel, including that.
2: Uh, yes, that is technically on the Hot Rod Cameras YouTube channel, but it is our you know sister channel, and we will we'll put a link yeah. to it in the show notes. So if you go to Cam Noir and uh, look up this episode, you'll see links to all the cool stuff, including uh, DZO, so you can see uh, what we're talking about. Excellent, excellent. And now short ends. All right, Ben, so it is time for our famed short end portion of the show. What is your obsession this week? This is just something I'm extremely
1: excited to see. And uh, as information comes out, I'll probably be talking about it more. But we all know the Coen brothers. We all love the Coen brothers. They're an institution. They make Never amazing movies.
2: I'm kidding. Um, I, I, I think it's I've mentioned yeah. on the show many times that Miller's Crossing is my favorite movie. So. Yeah,
1: uh, <laughs> certainly in my top five ever. So for the first time ever. Those guys have been working together since the 1980s for the first time since the 1980s there's a new joel cohen movie coming out but ethan was ethan. elsewheres the whole ethan time. said
2: you're on your own kid i'm not, I'm not doing this
1: <laughs> and uh and moreover it is an adaptation of shakespeare's macbeth oh uh called the tragedy of macbeth which is actually i, I believe that's the shape the full title for the shakespeare play and it stars Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand as wow. uh, as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. I'm presuming, I don't know, maybe they've gender swapped it. And Frances McDormand is Macbeth, and 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 Denzel is playing uh, Lady Macbeth. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, shot by Bruno de Bonnell. I hope oh. I'm pronouncing his name right. Fantastic. He's one of the best. He's an amazing cinematographer. I've loved his uh, his work for years. Although apparently I've never said his name out loud. But you know that's how how a lot of it goes. And uh, it uh, is closing BFI Fest, yeah. so it's finished. I think they I think they were shut down in the middle of the pandemic. I was reading because I've been sort of following this for I don't know the last year or so. I mean, this is the stupid hacky thought that comes to my head immediately, which is I wonder what you know which one's the talented one. Is is it going to feel like a Coen Brothers movie without Ethan? Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are we going to be like, oh, Joel, Joel had the mojo the whole time? Are they going to reunite and make another movie after this? I don't know. They certainly don't owe us any movies. They've made so many great movies, but I'm just fascinated. Oh, and also, I believe the movie is in black and white. Wow. That, that's, it wouldn't be the first time. you know. There's, there's always the man who wasn't there, which uh, they made in black and white. But it, it is the first Joel Cohen solo directed effort, even though if you look back at, at their movies, I think pre-intolerable cruelty ethan cohen was always credited as producer and joel as director but they both have been very open about the fact that they both of them directed all the movies they co-directed so it's just gonna be interesting to see and interesting also uh, joel cohen isn't necessarily someone who seeks out the microphone and wants to talk about his work all that much but it'll be interesting if he does or to read articles about it an american cinematographer or wherever about like what it was like when it was just joel cohen i'm fascinated by this on 100 levels a good shakespeare adaptation is rare but there are some there are some great shakespeare adaptations i think it would be phenomenal just to watch denzel washington and francis mcdormand uh you know do the shakespeare dialogue i just i can't wait to see uh see what it is so that's my obsession
2: nice it sounds really what is what is yours uh, we've talked about it on the show. You're probably aware that Blackmagic released a 12K camera, uh, usurping and surpassing all the other, you know, relatively affordable, commercially available digital cinema cameras out there. They have this 12K camera. Well, it was $10,000 up until two days ago, three days ago, four days ago now maybe, and where they suddenly almost half the price down to $59.95. 90, so uh, they they chopped off basically $4,000 so off off it's the price basically of the $500 per K. <laughs> That sounds about right. Yes, exactly. $500 per K. If you want to look at it that way. uh, It's a very competent, very capable camera. And its number one claim to fame is this ridiculous amount of uh, resolution that it has. It's a super 35 sensor. It's built sort of on the same sort of platform as their previous camera. Now, when they've done this in the past, it was usually the sort of telltale sign that they have something new brewing. And of course, NAB got pushed to another uh, time this year. And it wouldn't surprise me if they have something, they announced something new because that's a pretty major drastic price change.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yep.
2: and it's always very interesting to see what Blackmagic does next. They're not a boring company, even when they- Never boring. I'll give they, them that. When they fail, they fail spectacularly, and If it's you really say not that, Kaze is going to call you up and yell at you.
1: He loves Blackmagic.
2: You know what? He, he should love Blackmagic. They make great stuff. They make, you know, DaVinci yeah. Resolve is incredible. Their pocket cameras are incredible. They make really, really good stuff, and they, they do deserve a lot of praise. Their flagship camera, to have that kind of price reduction, uh, one, it might be trying to goose it to sell. That's what they did with the Pocket camera when they dropped it from a $995 to $495, and of course they blew them all out immediately. Maybe something like that is going to happen here, uh, but but I don't know. Maybe they're was... about to
1: unveil a a, a 24K camera. I, th-
2: I don't know about that. Uh, Here's I do know about quite a few sort of new up and coming cameras and things out there from from other manufacturers, but Blackmagic is sort of a sort of a black hole for me. I really they keep their cards really close to their vest. They really don't tell a lot of people what they're working on. I get little inklings here and there, but of this one. I got nothing. So I, I don't know what they're planning. Maybe it was just a price change and we don't have anything to concern ourselves more than that. But uh, usually when they do something like that, well, they're kind of working on something else. And for this camera mm. to go go with that kind of pricing in such a short period of time since it debuted makes me feel like there's they got a trick up their sleeve that we haven't seen yet. So so I don't know. I don't know what it's going ha- to I've be.
1: never tested the 12K camera. I've never really looked at it that much. And so I'm kind of blown away with curiousness about like, okay, so they're getting they're getting that kind of resolution out, but at the expense of what? Or at the expense of nothing. Like, how can they afford to make a camera that's that much higher resolution than any other camera on the market by much more established companies like Aerie, you know, Sony, Red, whatever. You know, Red has an eight K camera and has for a while. So maybe twelve K isn't that much more insane, but I just I just wonder what the advantage of that is. I'm not trying to negate it in any way, but I always feel like, you know, most films are not gonna master at higher than four K resolution. So to have something that insane is is to reframe later or to punch in or something. Are you gonna punch in what? four times three times into 4k resolution
2: certainly you can and it does make some very good looking images is it a camera that is so head and shoulders above everything else out there that that everyone should stop using their other camera and pay attention to it no i mean it's not a perfect camera there are no perfect cameras but Mm -hmm. uh if you are obsessed with resolution and there are a few people out there who are or who really do have to do these type of things where they have one camera angle and they everything is a punch in or a reframe it's mm-hmm. a pretty darn way, good way to go. So, if, I, and if, I'm not, I'm not
1: bagging on Black Magic. It's just like 12k when I first heard that. I'm like, that just sounds excessive. Decadent, decadent even.
2: And there's some good footage online that that people can watch from this camera. Uh, Is it perfect? No, but it's really impressive and uh, now at a bargain price. So for I'm sure I've got yeah no I mean five thousand to
1: me like that that's that's almost if you're if you're not well yeah five six thousand is about the place where I'm like any more than that you should rent it if you're not running a company that's making a living on your camera.
2: Yeah, I mean, it really depends. I mean, look, we can get into the uh, rent versus own uh, debate all day long. Having worked in both those capacities, I have a pretty good idea of what use cases would would make sense for for renting versus purchasing. I, I can tell you that you should buy the one hundred and fifty thousand dollar camera uh, if that is appropriate, mostly for what you're doing. Oh, and you of course, can make, yeah. Make yeah, your yeah. Money I mean, back, if you're but,
1: if you have a business that can sustain it. I just think that most people don't have a business. Mo- like, I think there's like a lot of people who want to have a camera that they can go make small industrial films or th- that they can work with. And f- it's not going to take you years and years to make your money back on a $5,000 camera. But if you buy a $50,000 camera, it's a different situation.
2: Yeah, you're doing an entirely different uh, quantity yeah. or level of work and, and everything else. But I will tell you, Blackmagic makes some really good cameras. And it just so happens Agreed. that they make one camera that is uh, more resolute than all the others. And it just had a huge price drop. More resolute. <laughs> the resolute camera it is it's extremely resolute so we'll all
1: just be sitting here biting our fingernails waiting to find out if black magic's about to release their 50k camera for
2: uh, something tells 10K. me they're, they're not but it wouldn't if they released it.
1: a 50k camera for ten thousand dollars that would still be five hundred dollars per k <laughs> and that that sticks to my theory
2: all right so so ben i think that just about does our <laughs> does our short ends this this week uh where can people find you if they want to get more ben rock in their life
1: I mean, and who wouldn't want that? Uh, you should go to benrockonline.com and you can uh, check out some of my work. You can find all my social media links. Uh feel free to add me and
2: uh, all that good stuff. Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. Uh, I I had a couple of uh, people who uh, one of them was on the show uh, drop in today and just say hello, which was which is always nice if you uh, Can you are, say
1: who it was? was it was It, a Bill, secret?
2: it was Bill Totolo.
1: Now now Bill Totolo is the best. He's a wonderful guy. Not only was he on the show, but he
2: co-hosted the show when I had the deadly coronavirus. That's right. He did. He stepped into the void that, that you left, Ben. He 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 got up to bat and knocked it out of the park good job Bill's an
1: awesome guy love the guy anyway so that's awesome any other places people can find you online?
2: Uh, you can find me at the usual sorts of places like uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and, you know, uh, anywhere else where you can type in at Ilya Friedman. You'll you might find me still not Snapchatting. Snapchatting's not not really my thing. I,
1: I, I kind of wonder is Snapchat like uh, still as hot as it was. It feels like TikTok seems to have filled that space. It's kind of like the new Snapchat. Seems like it. Mm. So, but yeah, yeah I, I don't exist there either. So anyway, uh, hey, let's thank some people. Uh, Who should we thank
2: first? Let's thank our editor, Ben Katz, who did a good job, hopefully, this time of not making a sound too dumb. So thanks, Ben.
1: Thanks, Ben. I prefer sounding erudite. (laughs) Uh, We should also thank Kezal Atrachi, who I'm sure wanted to throw in some of his uh, thoughts and opinions about black magic while we were discussing black magic today he actually in Facebook uh, mentioned something that I, I had said and made it a point for debate on his Facebook page and for the record he seriously disagrees with me on this one topic <laughs> so uh, so that's all good and then uh, we should also lastly and never leastly want to thank Alana Cody our amazing producer she's got uh, some just kick ass interviews coming up We uh, and she's always like you know reaching out and being like hey do you want to talk to this let Legend. And yeah. I'm like, matter of fact, I would like to talk to that legend.
2: And, and you know what? If you're listening to us right now and you don't follow us on social media, you are missing out on the opportunity to ask questions to some of these legends. There happens to be uh, a thing up there right now for do you have any questions for Robert Yeoman? You know, Robert Yeoman, who has shot basically every Wes Anderson movie and a whole bunch yeah. of other people's, uh, you know, stuff and, and drugstore cowboy and you name it. I mean, like you want to ask him a question? Go to our Instagram. Go to our Twitter. We were supposed to have an interview with him
1: just a few days ago and uh, and he had the high class reason to cancel that he was in an editing session with Wes. That was Wes Anderson. And it was like, no problem. Whenever he wants to come on the show, we cannot wait to talk to Robert Yeoman. He's he's, his work is just unbelievably amazing.
2: And if you've got a question for him, go to our Twitter, go to our Instagram and uh, tweet at us or Instagram comment at us uh, what your question is. And maybe we'll we'll ask it to him. And maybe even attribute it to you. I've uh, we've been known to do that almost every time, as a matter of fact. So yeah, <laughs> uh, okay. And you know, next time Ben, we're gonna do some listener mail. We got so much listener mail. So hey, uh, you know, don't be surprised next time when we start off with a whole all you know the hit parade of people saying all sorts of uh, adoring things about us. So hey, I love uh, being you,
1: adored. That's yeah, great. Yeah.
2: It'll be the Adoration Society of the of the uh,
1: Cinematography Podcast. I look forward to it. It will make
2: my ego more buoyant than it is even now. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that just about does it for us. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. This has been the
1: Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.